I didn't know this, but I discovered in thinking about this evening that the Barbara of Seville is in fact the ninth most, pop, most performed opera in the world. Um, and I suppose when you think about it, you can see why. It has a winning heroine, Rosina, with an absolute backbone of steel and a mind of her own. There's a, a deliciously drowsy, droopy, ardent aristocratic suitor, Count Almaviva, uh, and who, with the help of the local barber, a kind of clever, cunning servant, outwits Rosina's gruesome uh, guardian, Dr. Bartler, who is indeed in some awful way hoping to lead his ward to the altar. There is, of course, also Rossini's wonderful score, bubbling, sparkling, scarcely pausing for breath through its two acts. The, this quartet of characters, of course, first moved and lived not in Italy, but north of the Alps. The libretto was carved out of the first of a trilogy of plays by Pierre Beaumarchais about Figaro. Um, and indeed, Mozart and his librettist Aponte had already borrowed the second of the three plays 30 years before for their opera, The Marriage of Figaro. Um, the original Beaumarchais version was first performed in 1775 in Paris by the Comédie Française, then housed in the Tuileries Paris, uh, Palace. Rossini's Barber was not the first opera to borrow Beaumarchais' play. Giovanni Pazello had already set the story to music for a performance in St. Petersburg in 1782. However, Rossini eventually saw his older rival off the stage, but at the first performance of this opera in Rome on the 20th of February 1816, Paisello's supporters, we think, made life very difficult indeed for the performers. Some of the audience hissed and jeered throughout, and there was trouble on stage too. Um, we don't seem to go to performances like that anymore. Um, I'm, I'm longing to go for one where the audience behaved badly. Anyway, um, it's not too tempting of you this evening. Um, uh, I think possibly it was the use of the basso buffo, the comic bass, that Paisello's supporters particularly disliked. This was a sort of sense of Rossini changing, adapting the form with voices for characters like Dr. Bartolo and Don Basilio, the music teacher. All was forgiven, though, to Rossini by the second performance of the work, and the Barber of Seville went on to become, well, the ninth most performed opera in the world. Well, we have a trio of guests this evening to explore the Barber of Seville. Ilona Domnich, the soprano, who's covering the role of Rosina, will be sharing her view ideas about Rossini's heroine, and actually she'll be on stage singing the role itself of the future Countess Almavila on March the 15th. And we're also joined by Richard McGrath, a newish member of the music staff here at English National Opera. But our first guest is the theatre historian Sarah Lenton. So please, will you welcome Sarah Lenton. <laughs> Sarah, let's begin with a very simple question. What exactly is an opera buffa? Opera buffa is comic opera. And uh, the, the posh opera, the, the opera with all the, the, the um, you know, where all the money went, was opera seria. That's um, serious opera, as it, it's now called. But it was just called opera in those days. And eventually people realised there was something called opera buffa. So we'd better call opera something else. Oh, let's call it opera seria. And so there's these two types going around in the 18th century. Opera buffa, as a comic opera, was put on in public theatres, not court theatres, and uh, attracted the middle classes, uh, opera goers, uh, the courts too, but, but basically the audience would be more middle class and working class, and needless to say, the shows reflected that, so they're all about tradesmen and merchants and, and, and the wily working class, but also opera buffer is bound to be 
about the middle classes and the working classes because traditionally European comedy is about these interesting but rather amusing characters that you see in the high street. So if you go to an opera buffer, uh, you'd expect lots of doors, like nowadays you'd see a farce, uh, and they might be shops or they might be the doors in someone's house and people would be coming in and out, and you'd be interested in the doings of the middle class and their, their rather cunning, impudent servants who keep the plot going. Which, where should we look for the roots of, of, of this comic uh, middle-class, working-class, professional tradition? Rome, absolutely Rome. Uh, Plautus, uh, comic Roman um, plays, and that went fed all the way through Italian comic um, acting, and famously, of course, uh, by the 18th century, Commedia dell'arte, the, uh, the troops that used to go around Italy putting up in barns or playing in a piazza with Harlequin as the wily serpent, servant, Pantaloni as the old man, who was always going to be thwarted, and Columbine as the girl who's always chased by the boy, the hero. And the moment you see the subtitle of Barbara Seville, The Guardian Outwitted, you think, hello. <laughs> well, that's going to be Pantalone, isn't it? Betty's a, Betty's a base, and of course he is. And it, almost as he starts the show, you know that Don Bartolo thinks, I, what was that subtitle again? The Guardian Outwitted. I wonder which one that is. You know, so it's, it's a very, very... Um, traditional plot. And, and do we look in, in Bufa for characters or do we look for, for comic types? I mean, you've talked about Harlequin, um, you know, these characters who belong, Pantaloni, to, to this tradition. I mean, is that what we're going to get or do we get characters? Uh, both. Uh, a, a wily serpent, a serpent just drops into uh, a character anyway. So you'd see that in Shakespeare as soon as you see a Dromeo. Or, uh, or, or, you know, somebody like that on, on stage, um, Gobbo, uh, you think, oh, hello, he's going to be the rogue, he's going to be the one who, who thinks quicker than his master. And yet, within Shakespeare, you get used to the young hero having a character. Orlando is different from, in As You Like It, is different from Orsino in um, Twelfth Night. So, uh, and the same thing happens here, especially as this particular format had been shaped by a master dramatist, Beaumarchais. And so you get not only this very traditional storyline and characters coming into Barbara Seville, but they're shaped by a great 18th century dramatist who produced for France a comedy of manners in many ways. And we're moving into the more civilized, witty 18th century, very traditional characters, but suddenly they're, they're speaking um, a much more sophisticated language, and it's not just farce, it's, it's the way they relate to each other are interesting, as well as the fact that some of them jump out the window sometimes. It, clearly the 18th century though was fascinated by types, I mean one has to think no further than Hogarth's great series, The Rake's Progress, The Harlot's Progress, um, in which in a sense these, these, these sequences of six images are really about individuated characters. I mean the harlot is kind of personified almost in a kind of expressionist way as the harlot. Oh I see what you mean, yes. The, um, if you watch Barbara Seville, um, yeah, you get, you get used to the fact Barbara, the Barbara Seville's got a name, he's Figaro, but he is the barber and he is the servant. Mm. And he's not just a Commedia dell'arte type, and he's not just a fully-fledged character by Beaumarchais, he is an 18th century character. You see Rosina, who again is a type, a heroine who's locked up, can't get out. 
uh, trapped in her house. There's bars on her windows and a guardian who's watching her every step. In many ways, she's like a very typical 18th century girl, uh, as it was perceived and used by, by uh, comic writers. But the moment you, you get a Rosina, you think, yeah, she's not, she, she might be trapped. And, and I sort of know where we are now. I know this is the sort of girl who needs to be sprung. But she's got coloratura, hasn't she? She's going to get out of here. And, and as soon as you meet Rosina, her character comes across very, very fast. And, and, and you don't just worry about her situation, her type. You think, oh, that sort of girl, wow. Um, and off goes the show. And it's the same with the tenor. Uh, who is the ardent, sincere tenor, as you'd expect, but he too has his character, an ability to uh, don a quick disguise, which is a refreshing sort of invention from a tenor. And, um, and so it goes on through the show. So as you watch Barber, you very rarely just say, oh, it's the Barber, oh, it's this. You, you get used to the characters themselves. Rossini inherits this, this form of comic opera. What does he do to change and adapt it? How does he kind of move it on? Because we know elsewhere in life, particularly his opera area, that he was always wanting to change the rules he inherited. That's an interesting one. Let me have a little reflect on that. Um, I think what he does is, is gives them all a voice so that although you'd expect the tenor to come on and sing a serenade, and he does. Um, he does it very early, and the audience is reassured right from the word go that whatever else uh, is happening in this piece, the tenor can be trusted. He sings that great long uh, tenor line, which always shows ardor and sincerity in a tenor, so the moment the boys sung that, you think, oh, good. Well, he does love her. That's, that's fine. Uh, Rosina, as you'd expect, uh, has spirit. Uh, so she's going to resist the bars that surround her. Uh, she's also, to my mind, and I think this is very Rossinian, heartless. Uh, there's a glitter to Rosina. And um, all this sparkle, all this coriander, all these notes... And she works out the man she wants and goes for it. You have to wait till you get to Cenerentola, where Rossini mm. changes the form again, where suddenly you get a heroine with heart. And even in this show, he sort of sends up the convention. So Basilio, uh, the slimy priest, has a fantastic aria, the Columnia aria, where he, 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 he describes an explosion an explosion of rumour that will drive the tenor out of town. It's a wonderful build-up of explosion in the aria itself. And at the end of it, Bartolo says, yeah, great, it'll take too long. <laughs> oh, why did I bother with that aria then? And yeah. so there's, there's also the sense that he's, uh, Rossini's enjoying this piece and, and he's slightly sending it up too. And there are presumably also musical conventions that have to be observed. For example, you know, the ensemble at the end of the act. Exactly. All of these kind of things too. There's loads of stuff uh, that you'd expect. The serenade, you'd expect uh, the cavatina. Uh, that's a two-part song, uh, for the, 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 especially for the heroine. Uh, so always with the cavatina, you have a slow, a slow um, first part, and then some sort of interruption or some reason to change gear and then you have a very fast, brilliant part. And to my amazement, when I, I was reflecting on this, normally in Verdi, someone sings a cavatina, they sing their slow part, the chorus enter and say something like, do you realise I've just found your mother and they're about to burn her at a pyre? Oh, oh, I think, I, I, I think I, I'll change mood. And, you know, and you, you start singing something rather furious. Um, in Rosina's cavatina, what you get is her saying, well, of course, you know, I'm very docile and gentle. Very lovely girl, really, very quiet. 
and she causes her own interruption and she says, ma, yeah. but, and you think, oh, hello, here we go, but I'm very docile unless someone thwarts me. And then I sing like this and off she goes. And so always there's the convention, but there's this Rossini having fun with it. And I think the great um, convention in a Rossini opera is you get a storm. You always get a storm in a, in a Rossini opera. And you hear the patter of rain in the pit, and you think, hello, we're getting a storm. And yet that storm is placed at the moment just before the last scene. And it's almost as if it's saying there's a change of mood. The weather's changed. We're turning a corner. There's a denouement coming. And so all these conventions are wonderful, but they're beautifully um, tailored for the drama. Sarah, thank you very much. Stay with us, because we'll talk a little bit about, um, um, the, as it were, some of the other things about this opera in a moment. Well, we're joined now by the soprano Elona Domnich, who's covering, as I said, the Roosevelt role of Rosina, and she'll also be on stage singing the future Countess Alma Viva on March the 15th. Uh, and also here with us is Richard McGrath, who's a new member of the music staff here. Will you welcome them both? Elena, you're going to sing in a moment Una Voce Poco file. Yes. We've just been talking. That moment when Rosina says ma, but seems to me almost the it's most the important... the most important word, well, yes. In the whole opera, actually. <laughs> Do you think? Um, well, no, I don't think so. Well, it does ex establish your, her character very well in the beginning. And Rossini, both Rossini and the text do it very well. Uh, she is feisty, she is sweet and lovely, but if you step on her way, she will, you, you must be beware of her. Um, it's, it is rather a popular aria among sopranos and mezzos, of course, and performed by um, amazing singers. What, what makes it, do you think, so popular? Well, I think uh, the music mainly. Um, there are lots of notes, as you said, lots of coloratura runs. And they're not there just to give um, exercise. They're there to express emotion. And it can be any emotion. It can be sadness, laughter, joy, happiness. And um, it is so perfect. Also, it shows the character. Maybe perhaps if Richard could play just the very beginning of the opening chords, it shows her nobility and beauty of her character. <laughs> it already puts you in in the picture you already can see who she is isn't it from the first I, note I, I think that's absolutely right and the, the the last little run of course tells us in an almost 18th century sense it's almost a little pastiche moment that she is indeed suitable to be the countess alma viva i mean she may at the moment be dr bartlow's ward and a member of the middle class but we really know don't we she's going to be a countess <laughs> Well, with Beaumarchais, she is uh, going through different stages, being locked in Bartolo's house and then becoming the Countess Almaviva. It is quite a journey for her. So, What do you think about her life before, I mean, when you're preparing for the role? I mean, do you suppose that she's always been a rebel? Has she always stamped her foot and had her own way? And you know, she emerged from the convent having wrecked the life of the Mother Superior. <laughs> Uh, well, she's Spanish, and I guess her blood <laughs> <laughs> runs runs hot. Yes. <laughs> and how, how 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 difficult is the role for a singer? 
Um, it is difficult, but uh, the combination of dramatic difficulties and vocal difficulties don't go separately. They are together. Um, and in fact, the more dramatically the singer is able to fill the role, the easier it is to sing because of the same reason that every note there is for a reason to express what she feels and the, the, the differences of her uh, of, of her moods and what she goes through. Uh, you were talking about the storm and um, this is a very incredibly moving point of the opera when she uh, lost, she loses trust in, in Alma Viva. She decides, um, she, suddenly she realizes that um, he doesn't love her anymore, that he's going to sell her to, to another. So it, it is incredibly moving. So it's not just funny and laughter. It also, there is also some tragedy, her personal tragedy. And that's a reminder that the music that Rossini writes for her is extraordinarily varied. It moves all the way from the brilliance of the closing section of, of, of the aria we're going to hear in a moment to that kind of long line of regret, that kind of elegiac moment when she thinks the whole world is, is over. He really does give her everything, doesn't he? Yes, absolutely. Um, Character-wise, mood-wise, and technically mm -hmm. as well. It, it spans from the bottom voice of the top voice, the top register. Uh, and it's very popular with mezzos and sopranos, obviously. Mezzos show the low part of the voice and sopranos the, the glittering top. <laughs> and and, and in, in terms of, of, of the point in a, in, a, in a career, do you have to wait to sing Rosina? We all want Rosina to be, of course, 18 or 19, but how, <laughs> how many singers are ready to do it at that age? Mm, you will have to ask them. <laughs> <laughs> but is it a role you have to wait for? I guess so. You have to be mature, I guess vocally because uh, the part is demanding mm. and personally i think you have to go through life experiences to to understand rosina to understand what she's about and where is she going and why why she makes her choices right you're going to sing una voce which i've r yes. rudely called its italian name what what what, what are we going to call it in english in my heart, a gentle voice. In my heart, a gentle voice. <laughs> Ilona, thank you. Oh. 
Christopher, thank you both very much indeed. Christopher, is this the first time you've worked on, on Barber? Yes, it is. Uh, first time I've worked on a Rossini opera, actually. Um, I've enjoyed it very much. Uh, what were your impressions when you first opened the score? Um, well, I suppose the things that I, I noticed were the importance of the rhythmic drive um, in a lot of it, um, which actually at times can be more difficult to achieve on piano than in, in the orchestra when you've got lots of underlying um, fast rhythms. Uh, as a repetitor, one has to sort of figure out the best way to achieve that or, um, orchestral effect so that um, and, uh, to decide what's the most important thing for the singers in the rehearsal to hear. Um, um, and the other thing um, is the orchestration. There's um, very often um, a build in dynamic through, um, with the addition of instruments. This kind of starts uh, very soft and quite gentle, and there's a gradual build, um, an ex extended um, build, and um, it reaches a climax, and then it's always, a, almost always, um, a sudden drop. There's very uh, rarely a, a gradual um, d decrease. It's always quite sudden, and then it starts again from the bottom and, um, and works its way up. Um, I suppose. Um, a, um, one example of that is uh, Basilio's aria, and I can just find it. This is the famous calumny aria, yes, aria. <laughs> um, so we've got this um, quiet rhythm. Which gradually builds um, until we get to... Um, and then that reaches... Uh, uh, actually, with the word explosion, we've got. Um, so that's throughout that entire aria. It's very gradual um, build-up, and then we have the same again in um, in the finale, in the finale of, of Act One, um, uh, which um, gradually builds up, and then there's a, a sudden drop in the middle, and then. Um, rises again. Yeah. I always think that the first audiences for this and indeed all of Rossini's comic operas must have been absolutely overwhelmed by these crescendi, these extraordinary passages you've just played. But yes, they, they never heard anything like this and it went on and on and suddenly this huge bang and they looked and it stopped. Yeah, but actually th this sort of effect is given the term uh, Rossini crescendo actually. That's yeah. a, Given that, given that term. So, so, yeah. does, does Rossini also give um, a kind of particular musical identity to his characters? We've heard the opening to Vocipocopho uh, where quite clearly he's hinting at, at the kind of grace and style of, of, of Rosina. Does he do the same with the other characters? Um, yes. I mean, they, um, they don't really have recurring motifs that are attached to them, but... Um, each, uh, each principal character, except Berta, um, in, uh, in Act One has an aria in which we get a, a clear insight into the, 
character. Um, well, the character in the, in the case of, it's the Cavatina. In the case of the Canton, we see him as um, romantic and pa uh, romantic, passionate character, and he uses a lot of poetic language. Um, as um, Ilona said, uh, Rosina is she's, she's quite cunning, and um, we see in her aria. Um, and with, with the others, it's the same. Um, Bartolo's aria, we see his um, his boil, his his anger gradually building right throughout, and um, yeah, so, so I think he, Rossini is quite an instinctive composer. So, we, as I said, there are no motifs exactly, but there is that structure where, where we do get um, a clear insight into the characters. And you yeah. and Lonia are going to do another little piece for us. What are you going to do next? Um, we're just going to do a very short section of the um, trio, which comes near the end of Act Two. Um, and maybe, Alona, would you like to explain what's, what's happening? Yes, I just wanted to add that I think it, it is, after all, bel canto style. And although bel canto means beautiful singing, but it is also beautiful voice and what this beautiful voice is able to do. So with all the singers and all the characters, those are um, the important moments. Uh, this um, moment is when Rosina discovers that Lindoro is the Count Almaviva. It's a very short moment. Um, he has been in disguise, obviously, and uh, this moment he, she discovers that it's him, the same man. Phew. <laughs> she, first, first she admires his beautiful clothes, of course, and then how rich he is. <laughs> Thank you both very much. White knuckle. <laughs> Sarah, we think of Mozart and da Ponte negotiating the marriage of Figaro literally with the emperor. Oh, uh, yes. But how radical was it for Rossini to set the first of these Beaumarchais plays 30 years later? Well, because already um, Paisiello had, had, had set it, um, it, was, it was in the operatic rep. Um, it was potentially dangerous because uh, the theatres of uh, it Italy in the early 19th century were powder cakes. Uh, they, all you could do was go to the theater, um, the very repressive governments, and huge restrictions on social and public life uh, for the middle and upper classes, but they could go to the theater. And so in they went, and they'd get a seat for the season, so they'd go every night for three months. And so they really 
made sure that any show they heard, they liked, because they were going to hear it for a month on end. It was like putting on the CD player. Um, so they were, uh, on the first night particularly, they were sort of, yeah, because if we don't make a noise now, it'll, it'll be with us for a month. On the other hand, the authorities were worried about these shows anyway, because uh, there'd been a, a revolution notionally started in Belgium from an opera house. So, I mean, any sort of radical remarks about let's free Italy, um, you know, wouldn't go down too well with the authorities. So the composers in the middle there thinking, got to please the audience, got to please the authorities, and got to get it on. Uh, in, uh, for Barbara and Seville, um, they hadn't worked out the show till a month before it was the first night. They hadn't got the libretto. Um, they didn't have the singers. Rossini couldn't start till he had the libretto, certainly couldn't start till he had the singers sorted. And he wrote the entire thing in two weeks. 600 pages. It takes two weeks to write out 600 pages of music. Never mind compose it. So it was all incredibly hairy. The director had annoyed everybody because he didn't have enough money to put a ballet on, which meant no girl's legs in the interval. A certain section of the audience was pretty un un unpleased with that. Uh, and on goes this show, and they're rehearsing, and they're, they're, they've got one show going, and they're rehearsing Barber, the singer's the horse, uh, there might have been a clerk in, uh, anyway, trying to get him, didn't help that the theatre cat walked across the stage in the Act One finale, and everybody started meowing, you know, and the cat got more and more agitated, and they kept saying to, pick the cat up, pick the cat, and the cat, and Bartolo, no, Figaro, had already fallen over in, the, in his first entrance and smashed his face on the stage. Um, and he had a nosebleed for the whole of his first aria. Some of the audience thought this was an effect and didn't like it. So every time he tried to pull his handkerchief out to get rid of the blood, they thought he was putting blood back on. So they yelled at him. The others were just laughing about the fact that he'd, he'd hurt his nose. So, you know, the whole thing was just dynamite. And... So the audience, you know, apparently didn't like it. And, of course, Beaumarchais is famous as a radical French playwright. So the authorities were going, hello, isn't Figaro a bit democratic? You know, all this sort of stuff. Um, so the whole thing was, was, was on tenthooks. The funny thing was, the second night, they all settled down. I think they were exhausted. They sat down and listened to the show. Thought it was marvellous. Rossini refused to come to the show. He said he was ill. Stayed in bed. The entire audience, apparently, turns outside his hotel, demanding to see him. He refuses. He sends the Figaro out, say, no, he's too ill. They throw oranges at the Figaro and black his eye for him. Then they throw more stones at uh, Rossini's windows and break them. And Rossini said, I had a really chilly night on the second night. You know, it was really cold <laughs> in my hotel. So where are you with this audience? Whether they like you or dislike you, you're having the most <laughs> ghastly time. Um, perhaps it didn't matter that it was a radical show too. Sarah, we've been looking on the screen here at, 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 at stills from Jonathan Miller's original production, Revived Here. Now, I mean, in a way, Jonathan Miller has perhaps taken the kind of wonderful hijinks of the theatre to heart. This is a very theatrical show in a number of ways, isn't it? Yes, I, I remember years and years ago when Jonathan Miller put this on, and he said in a, in a situation like this, he said, of course, this isn't... Rosina and Bartolo and Basilio. This is an acting troupe putting on Rosina, Bartolo and Basilio. I don't know if this has come through at rehearsals at all, but um, that was the original idea. And so when you see Rosina's um, front room, or the you know, place where she's incarcerated, you, you are apparently seeing uh, a set put on by a Commedia dell'arte troupe, at which point you do wonder whether this Commedia dell'arte troupe are making much money 
because if you look carefully at the costumes, you think the wardrobe could do with a bit of, bit of refurbishment, I feel. And so there's this deliberately slightly, we've been on the road, I can't tell you. We started in Milan, we're down in Naples now. It's been a hard tour. There is that slight <coughs> sense in the show of it, of it being a theatrical show. I don't think it ever goes beyond the first five minutes, to tell you the truth. I think we all get completely absorbed in the wonderful characters and forget about this acting troupe stuff. But if you're surprised by the shabbiness, it's not Eno and its budget. It's, it's the way it's supposed to look. The other thing that does... Uh, your eye kept, keeps being drawn, particularly to Alma Viva, who seems to have an inexhaustible pocket full of purses, to the idea that everybody needs to be paid in this opera. It's about money, isn't it? Yes, it is. You're quite right. Rosina is capital. Bartolo wants to marry her because of the dowry. The only time Bartolo smiles all opera is at the end, when Almaviva says, you can skip the dowry, I really don't care. Oh, <laughs> and he cheers up. There's um, a lot of money in this show, which does make the young tenor rather an appealing character because he does love her for herself alone. And, of course, all those notes. In a way, also, there's a, a kind of irony because we know what happens in part two called oh, The Marriage of Figaro. Yes. We, 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 in a way, at the end of this opera, we feel perhaps the torch has been handed on to a new generation. The world may be a bit better. Does, does the Rossini Almaviva become the Mozart Almaviva? I wonder. I, I wonder if Rossini finishes the show. It's a fairy story, let's face it. It's a happy ending. I don't think he's going to turn into a baritone and be horrid. <laughs> You're kinder than I am. <laughs> and the last question, because then we'll ask the audience if they'd like to join us. Um, I mean, going back to where I started, the fact that this is the ninth most popular mm. opera in terms of staging, I mean, why should that be? Have you a nice uh, Lenten explanation for its extraordinary popularity? It's a damn good show. Um, the, the reason is, I'm sure, is that he uses every single um, sort of theatrical convention he should uh, the, the serenade, the finale the cavatina, even the aria di sorbetti, the ice cream aria where you can nip out and have an ice cream because you're not supposed to be listening to it he uses absolutely every convention he should and he makes it dramatically viable it's, it's, it all turns into an incredibly good story Ladies and we have little time. If you would like to ask any of our guests a question, um, put up your hand. The roving mic will rove towards you. And there's the first question over there. You, you mentioned what influenced Rossini and Beaumarchais in writing this opera and the play. What do you think they influenced? I'm thinking perhaps maybe Woodhouse and oh. Coward and that sort of thing. You've got a very popular servant who completely outsmarts his master. Some very strong female characters. Do you think there's any influence from... Barbara of Seville, in those sorts of words. I, I think um, the, the wily servant is, is as old as the hills, frankly, and it's, it's just one of those big European plot lines. Uh, I, I don't doubt you're, you're seeing Blanding's Castle at the moment, are you? <laughs> um, you know, uh, I, I, it's difficult to see Figaro morphing into Jeeves somehow, isn't it? But, but that, that wonderful idea that the bloke with the money is the dim one and the one who's being paid is the clever one. Um, is, is always tickled people, and I, I, think, I think every culture is, is amused by that, yeah. Do we have another question? Another question, anybody? Yes, in the front row. You took me by surprise when you mentioned the ice cream opera. Can, can uh, I... Aria, come, sorry. Aria, yes, I'm sorry. <laughs> the ice cream aria. Could I, could I show my ignorance and ask you to oh, say I'm a bit more? I'm so sorry. Um, in the uh, early 19th century, uh, intervals were a bit variable, and the audience, because they came 
for the whole run, so they'd see the show 20 or 30 times, would choose after the first night what they wanted to listen to. So you'd get a lot of, oh, this is lovely, or you've got to listen to this. And they'd put the cards down or their supper down or stop flirting. Oh, it's marvellous, you know, and they'd listen. Um, but there'd be definitely little pauses, because you can't keep, I mean, it was pre-Wagner. Nobody thought you could keep it up for five hours, you know. Um, so there has to be moments where you relax. And these were called aria di sorbetti, ice cream arias. And a, a, a secondary character would have a chance to sing on stage but wouldn't be given such taxing stuff. Rossini would be astonished to see us sitting listening to a Sorbetti aria. He just wouldn't believe it was happening. The other aria was the suitcase aria, uh, when, um, uh, as it might be, Ilona might feel that uh, the, 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 the song given to you in Act Two is not as brilliant as the one you've got in your suitcase. <laughs> so, ouch, you, I'm sure you've done it, haven't you? Bring it out from the dressing room. So I'm sorry, that's what I'm going to sing. Joan Sutherland used to do Suitcase Iris towards the end of her life. Home Sweet Home is what she used to sing on these occasions. <laughs> so, um, all these wonderful contentions are just built into the piece. Mm. We've time for one more. For a very long time, the Germans considered opera was Italian. You know, that's that's what opera was, and uh, so that's why you get Marriage of Figaro written in Italian or Don Giovanni written in Italian. Uh, only a comic, a really comic opera, a Zingspiel with spoken dialogue, would be in German, but. Just, uh, funny enough, you're just picking the right moment, 1830s, 18, or getting into the eight, uh, early 19th century, uh, Germans were rather opposed to Italian opera because it was all part of classic art and Napoleon and we lost. And they're rather interested in this. Can't we do German operas? I bet, I bet we could do Siri and Freischutz is, is about to happen, okay? Um, but there's always been a great affection for Italian opera in the German-speaking lands, actually. And, 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 and some of the great Figaro's, indeed, mm. have had Herman Pride, yes, yes, quite. Um, ladies and gentlemen, good question. Thank you. thank you to all of you for being wonderfully attentive audience. Um, but our special thanks to, to Sarah Lenton, Elena Domlidge, and Richard McGrath for sharing wisdom, thoughts, advice, and great hopefully it's opened the door.